0: Yeah, hello there, my name is Cam Smith Across from me I have I'm Matt Stebman. how are you Cam? Very, very well, we do a show called Eat It on 3 Triple RFM, but uh, you probably know that Because that's why you're here <laughs> um, Now, if we're going to use If we're looking at a menu and we just have a couple Courses, um, we did have An interview with Kate Reed of The uh, Loon uh, That fabulous place That does yeah. probably the best croissants in all of Melbourne, yes. but what we are giving you now Is the full degustation menu Yes, and uh, the idea of this is really to flesh out Kate's earlier career in Formula One and mm. uh, it's uh, the full interview which uh, unfortunately due to time constraints we couldn't put on. No. But you're lucky in yes. this regard because you're here and you're about to have a listen to it. So here it is. This is Kate Reed talking about the history of transition from Formula One to the best croissants in Melbourne. Good morning Cam, how are you? I'm fueled by croissant and coffee so... I'm a very, very happy boy and I'm actually absolutely delighted to finally meet you because uh, it all started off with these whispers from Elwood which grew to this roar until it just got quite incredible and, and now we finally get to meet. So thank you very, very much for your time.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm glad to hear that you are well fueled for the interview.
0: Your career in getting to this point, here we are in uh, the early part of 2019, is one of a most amazing transition. Can you tell us about, first of all, your early life and your early interests?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, growing up, one of my greatest passions was actually motorsport, which clearly has nothing to do with croissants, so that might oh. come as a surprise to some. And yet,
0: we'll go on to that, I see similarities.
1: Yeah, well, I do now too, yeah. but I think to the... Uh, the normal observer they're not intrinsically linked Mm -hmm. so um, when I was growing up every Sunday night for me meant staying up late and watching the Formula One Grand Prix circus travel around the world with my dad on the couch we'd have a cup of tea and a piece of toast and sit there until the early hours of the morning watching the cars go round. and it was actually what I lived for I absolutely loved it and I started to think pretty early on, how could I actually turn this from a, like something that I love every Sunday night with my dad as a kid to potentially my career. I think I'm the type of person that I can't get out of bed in the morning unless I truly love what I'm going to do. A job isn't a job for me, a job has to be a passion. Yeah. So I started looking into it and I really enjoyed the maths and sciences at school. And so I went and spoke to my careers counsellor and they suggested maybe looking at studying aerospace engineering, which would be a fast pathway into potentially working in Formula One. So I studied very hard towards the end of high school. I got accepted for aerospace engineering at RMIT and I just powered through the course really motivated and driven by this goal to reach Formula One. And actually, about 14 months out of uni, I was offered a job with the Williams F1 team as an aerodynamicist. So, packed up my life and moved over to the UK to embark on a career in aerodynamics and Formula One. So, I got there, and I had a pretty clear idea that I imagine had been built up with a high level of expectation over a number of years, what I thought that job would look like, and it didn't really look in reality what I thought it was going to be.
0: Okay, Okay, that's two things. So first of all, what were your expectations of the job? And who were you working for again? Williams. Correct. Wow. Yeah, Sir Frank. Uh, Sir Frank, incredibly hard taskmaster. He was actually a true gentleman to me,
1: and I have nothing but... Wow. The most wonderful memories of working for him wow. and now looking back on it and sorry this is all oh, this is a bit of an aside to the story but yeah. i'm now so thrilled that my time in formula 1 was with a privately owned team owned by a man who just pursued it because of his total passion rather than one of the larger manufacturers that uses formula 1 as a platform to to advertise their
0: products. And dare we say, Frank Williams, I mean, obsessional adherence to detail and detailed kind of man, and maybe that experience has transferred to you perhaps in your later endeavours?
1: I think it might have already been in me, which is why... I think so, which is why I probably made it to Formula One, because I do have an obsession with detail, and working at that level, you really need it, and it was why I was potentially offered the job at Williams, because throughout the recruitment and interview process, I imagine that they saw that quality in me.
0: Yeah, and um, just by getting your foot in the door, it was uh, an incredible thing.
1: Well, they told me when I was over there that 3,000 yeah. resumes land on the desk every week.
0: I can just imagine. Yeah. And somehow you just rose to the top and away you went. Well,
1: I was the only female engineer in a company of 500 So there weren't 500 engineers, there was 500 employees in total, but so much so that in the aerodynamics facility, which was separate to the rest of the design office due to high levels of secrecy, there wasn't even a female toilet. Yeah, Frank and I shared the disabled
0: toilet. What was your specialty? You were working on the front wings of uh, Formula One?
1: Yeah, I was working on the front end
0: of the car. So
1: Airflow,
0: all about that airflow. All about the airflow. So
1: designing the external components, things Mm. like the the wings the aerofoil sections uh flaps any attachments to the front wing and then also looking at the the front brake cooling and the nose cone
0: (laughs) keep keep you up at night thinking about that and of course it would because this is it and this is about base load increments obsession and relentless relentless refining it's almost like a Japanese ethos isn't it in a way
1: It's how the Formula One season works, basically the, the Williams F1 team. I've just realised this has turned into a motorsport discussion rather than a food discussion. Well, don't okay? worry.
0: No, what it does is this informs us for when you did this flip, because we've got to find out why you decided, actually, maybe this isn't for me, this, these brake calipers and uh, this, this relentless flow. And just hanging around the wind tunnel all the time.
1: Well, basically, the Williams F1 team worked... Uh, their aerodynamics office was split 75% of the office working on the current season's car. So every single week, making modifications to the car to suit the different circuits around the world. And also try and iron out bugs and continual improvements. And then 25% of the office worked on the next season's car once the regulations for the following season were released.
0: Once you knew, yeah.
1: Once we knew. So there was a little bit of a jump on an idea because often the FIA make large changes in the regulations and you really need to be thinking about that 12 months in advance. So I was part of the team that were working on the current season's car. And I think... I imagined that in Formula One you really have the best in their field working in in this upper echelon level of engineering, really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with technology and, I mean, in previous decades we've seen Formula One drive development that has cascaded down into the automotive industry with commercial cars. Things like regenerative braking, traction control, they all came from Formula One. I was really excited about the possibility of having this opportunity to work on you know a relatively unrestricted budget and thinking completely outside the normal square of what's possible and potentially being able to design something that may one day affect the car driving down the road on the way to woolworths yeah.
0: so the equivalent of i've invented abs Again, or something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I actually had I had goals that I would like to be the first female technical director in Formula One. So that was that's what I wanted to work towards. When I got there, um, Williams weren't a front-running team, and I think potentially the vision that I just outlined is possible for the team that's winning because they're out in front, they're motivated by success, everyone's really positive, and everyone's. Because you already have the jump on the rest of the field, you can continue to be innovative because you're not trying to catch up. But when you're playing catch up, it's a very different ball game. Mm. And I really felt like at the time I worked there that while there were elements of the job that were what I thought, I really felt like there wasn't that, that possibility to be innovative because we were just trying to catch up on the teams that were winning.
0: We are just trying to get on the podium.
1: Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, And it was not a really motivating environment. I think everyone was highly stressed because there is that pressure to win.
2: Succeed, yes.
1: Correct. And those 3,000 CVs sitting on the desk are this constant reminder to you that if you're not doing well enough, there are a lot of people willing to jump straight into your seat. Mm -hmm. So the hours were incredibly long, which I don't necessarily mind, but um, maybe we were 14, 16 hours a day literally just sitting at a computer. There was... No brainstorming together or collaborative discussion. You were almost discouraged for having conversation in the office. And I, you can tell I'm a chatterbox. Yeah. So that really dampened my spirit.
0: So the corporate culture was uh, clashing with your own personal views. Correct. Yeah. So you said to yourself, hmm, scratch his head. I need to do something different. And how on earth did you go from, from that to this, crescent-shaped pastry epiphany?
1: Mm, I didn't necessarily scratch my head and think I need to do something different. I'm incredibly stubborn and determined, and I'd worked very hard to get to this point in my life, and for years, and I wasn't really willing to give it up so easily, but in pushing myself to stay there, I actually developed really bad depression. Really? And... Then depression, this is a twist in the story that I don't think many people know, Um, the depression then turned into very severe anorexia. Oh
2: my God. Yep. Wow.
1: So I got to about 38 or 39 kilos and I was incredibly sick, so sick that I really wasn't well enough to sustain life on the other side of the world away from the majority of my support network. So my dad got on a plane and flew over and packed my life up and brought me home about three years, yeah. Yeah, beauty, huh? what a beauty! The
0: mission of mercy, correct? Good old dad. I've got to stop saying correct. <laughs> no, that's all right. No, that's, all right. that's Um So you came back, but then it, 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 it's a notion of the, the whole thing. It's, it's about Paris. What happened? How did these croissants enter your, into your consciousness?
1: Well, it's a little bit of a combination between my passion for the technical and yeah. scientific.
2: Yeah.
1: My the fact that I was starving myself yes. and when you do have anorexia your body sends signals to your brain all day about food so it's literally all you can think about and in order to surround yourself with it without eating it you start making it for everybody else. So working with the ingredients, you can live vicariously through that and then seeing other people's enjoyment. Yes. So one of the best ways to do that is by baking. And I just, I'd always loved baking, but not to a, a professional level. Yes. But when I got back to Australia and I had a lot of time on my hands because I was unwell and couldn't properly work, I started baking a lot. And for a brief period of time, I thought, maybe I should give a professional career one last shot and I ended up getting a job at an office in the city just down the road from Cumulus Inc when it had just opened and I was new back to Melbourne and I didn't know much about this Cumulus and this Andrew McConnell but I had to walk past it on my way to work every day and it was my treat to myself every morning to go in and sit at the kitchen bar and have a coffee And watch the chefs begin to prepare the food.
2: This is upstairs or downstairs? No, the original downstairs. downstairs.
1: So every morning I was able to surround myself with just watching these chefs sort of really intricately and lovingly prepare ingredients and then.
0: Great ingredients too.
1: Yeah, Yeah, beautiful ingredients. Um, And and
0: what a stage it is to be able to sit up there, and you have a a beautiful view of it.
1: Third seat from the right is my seat. I think I should have a plaque on that seat. Okay, all right.
0: We'll Well, talk to Andrew about that. I I actually talked to Andrew the other day, and he was saying, yeah, my God, she was in here all the time. Um, So so this is by observing. You're looking at great food, and you're seeing how great food is prepared with love, passion, and precision. That's right. Yes.
1: And to be honest with you, um, when you do have an eating disorder, you have become very antisocial and you also don't trust people to cook for you. Mm. But because I could see the chefs preparing the food, Cumulus was actually the first place that I went out for dinner. I actually went out with my brother. He was down from Sydney for a weekend and he said, Katie, let's go out and have a meal. Where do you want to go? And the only place I felt comfortable going was Cumulus because I could see how they were preparing the food and I trusted the chefs. So slowly over the period that I was working in this corporate job in the city, I just started to organise all my meetings to be at Cumulus and then I'd find excuses to go down there. And at the point that I realised that I was spending more time at Cumulus than my office, I thought, no, this is a sign. You've given it one last go. You've got to give hospitality a go. So it was Andrew McConnell and Cumulus that really motivated me to make this big change from you know an office job to hospitality and I realized through my baking that I that was the area of hospitality that I loved because baking's a bit scientific it's not like preparing a stir fry where you can throw in seasoning and maybe a couple of extra ingredients if you put an extra handful of sugar in something it's going to completely change the balance and potentially the rise of a cake the flavor of it the density the crumb it's so scientific and you also can't change multiple elements at once in a baking oh. product because you don't know which one had the, had the effect. And that's an engineering technique, change one variable at a time. So that link of engineering and baking really appealed to my technical brain. So I got a job working in a couple of cafes, um, notably three bags full. that was owned by Nathan Tolman at the time. Yeah. And Sarah Folletta, his wife is again one of my heroes. She just, First of all, her salads are amazing, but her baking products were out of this world. And I really wanted to work for her and make her recipes. And so I was going along nicely doing that, but something, there was this little pull that maybe there was something a bit more technical in the baking world that I could wrap my engineering brain around. And I started to develop a little bit of an interest in Viennoiserie, which is the family that croissant
0: come from. Yes, because the croissant isn't French, but... You've probably explained well, that a million times.
1: The croissant is French, but it comes from French. Austrian heritage. Yes, yeah. correct.
0: Through the discovery of Turks that were trying to break into the city. And, and Yadier, then Marie
1: yeah. Antoinette marrying the French prince, taking her pastry chef with her, and the croissant evolved through that process.
0: Yeah. Gee, it improved the breakfast buffet, no, no doubt, in Versailles. <laughs> well, this is a lot better here, yeah.
1: So... At the time, I was working at a cafe and I went up to the library to borrow this beautiful book, like a coffee table book that they had on Paris patisseries because I was starting to form this interest in the very intricate French pastry style. So then I came back home, randomly opened up the book to a double page photo of really zoomed in pana chocolat all, I can still remember it so vividly. I could open up this, I could open up the book to the exact page now. Yes. And all of the layers were just so perfectly defined and I closed the book, walked straight up to flight centre and booked a ticket to Paris. No way. So I went into work the next day and I told the boss that I'd done that and that at the time I was working at this beautiful little cafe in Camberwell.
2: Yeah.
1: I said, Mary, I'm going to Paris in September on holiday and she said, can I come with you? Cool. And then her husband overheard, and he said, well, can I come as well? So the three of us trekked over to Paris. We shut the cafe.
2: Yeah.
1: Trekked over to Paris in the September. It was their wedding anniversary while we were there. And for six days, we spent three, we the three of us just walking around Paris together. And on the seventh day, they said, look, it's our wedding anniversary. Do you mind if we just have the day together? And by this stage, I was thinking, I'm sure they need a bit of a break from me. So instead I walked across from the left bank to the right bank yes. to Canal Saint-Martin, which is the 10th arrondissement, right. into the little boulangerie where the photo of the pain au chocolat had been taken and walked into this bakery and it was, there were the pain au chocolat but there were dozens of other varieties of the most beautiful viennoiserie I'd ever seen. And I think I must have been standing gobsmacked in the middle of... This boulangerie and the shop assistant started to laugh at me. And in broken French, I tried to explain to her I'd seen the photo in a book in Melbourne and I'd booked my ticket here because of that. This is why I'm here. Yeah. So this if, is
0: like my holy grail.
1: So she slowly explained to me in French that the owner spoke a bit of English and she went to get him and I told him the story. And he gave me all these pastries for free and, and was thrilled that I'd visited the bakery. So I went and sat on the steps of Montmartre and took a nibble of each pastry. Yes. And the next day I sent him an email thanking him because I'd been so blown away by them. And at the end of the email I said, Oh, look, is there any chance you'd ever consider taking on an apprentice? I'd love to learn from you. And he wrote back immediately and said, We're very small. Nobody in the boulangerie speaks English except for me. And it's very unusual for us to do that. But I can actually see the same passion in you, that's in me, when would you like to start? So a few months later, I was on a plane back to Paris to learn the art of Viennoiserie.
0: So what was he like to work with?
1: So I actually... whats his name? Sorry. His name's Christophe Vasseur, Vasseur. and his bakery Vasseur. is Vasseur. Du Pane deside right. which is beautiful still to this day. Their pan des amis, this enormous slab loaf of bread, is yes. to this day still the best bread I've ever had in my life.
0: The bread of friends. Correct. Yeah, I've yep. got it, yeah.
1: So I worked under his head pastry chef, a guy called Sebastian, who had less than no time for me.
0: Yes, and he would have um, been appalled that you were even there he was, at was, the beginning. He was truly
1: appalled, yeah, like, like, truly appalled.
0: As only the French can be.
1: That's right. <laughs> I, and But the pastry chef Why working did you win under,
0: him over? Did you win him over in the end? You did, never did?
1: I... He now loves me. Every time I go back to Paris, he's thrilled to see me. But for the time I worked at the bakery, he didn't want a bar of me. Uh, I was this non-French speaking, lack of pastry knowledge. roast beef. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But Okay,
0: but you endured.
1: Well, he had another girl working there called Jung Ji, who was a pastry chef from Korea who trained under Pierre Hermé. She'd done her apprenticeship and then she was the other full-time pastry chef. And Yung ji felt really sorry for me, so she taught me everything.
0: She was your ally in the kitchen.
1: But she didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Korean. Right. So we would speak broken French to each other. And I think I came back to Australia speaking French with a Korean accent.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what is a Croissant. Let's define it for people.
1: Like the best breakfast ever. A croissant and a coffee, you can have one in each hand. Potentially if you want
0: to be French, you can dunk
1: your croissant in your coffee.
0: But uh, how do you eat your croissant? Do you rip off the the tails and then do the middle? No, I don't
1: tear, I just bite. I really I enjoy crunching through the layers with my teeth. I find but everybody has their own way of doing it. I don't like cutting it. It's yeah. No. And then, like, it's really nice just licking your finger at the end and then getting all the little crumbs off the plate. I like that bit too. So waste not, want not.
0: (sighs) It's such a ritual, isn't it? But um, can we just define it as how do you define not the idea of a croissant but the reality, the formula, the thing? What is a croissant?
1: For me, a croissant is truly a celebration of the quality of the butter that it's made with. Yes. And if you can't taste butter in a croissant, it's not a croissant. Yes, Um, A croissant should, for me, my ideal croissant should be beautiful and crispy and golden on the outside. And when you bite into it, it should almost shatter. Mm -hmm. And when you get into the inner folds or layers, which is a honeycomb structure, you should be eating it when it's still warm out of the oven. So those layers haven't yet had the chance to seize up and set, but they're soft and buttery and for me a croissant should not be sweet it should err on the side of savory and the butter flavor should be so inherent it shouldn't leave a greasy taste in your mouth just utter enjoyment so yeah and it should leave you not feeling very full like it's it's a light a light it's it's like having essentially calorie wise it's having a piece of toast generously spread with butter but the butter's just
0: distributed what sort of a dough is a croissant dough for people to understand?
1: Uh it is a enriched oh some can be enriched so um fat products added like if you a base dough is sort of water with yes. flour, salt, sugar and yes. yeast yes. you can enrich it by adding a fattier product for example uh milk yes. enriches the dough yes. uh eggs enrich the dough Everybody has a slightly different tweak for their croissant recipe. I'm Mm. obviously not going to reveal what's in mine because it's incredibly different to everybody else's. Yes. Um, And I think it's probably one of the things that that sets us apart. I don't think it is the thing that sets us apart. Yes. But, um, yeah, it's it's a well-kept loon secret.
0: Secret, and it shall not come out. But is there a comparison to be made between, say, puff pastry where you are folding... The, uh your dough that you have made with fat, in this case beautiful, beautiful butter, is, is that sort of a, a good thing for people to get their heads around
1: an analogy-wise? So the only difference between puff pastry and croissant pastry is puff pastry does not have yeast in it. So um, you don't need to prove puff pastry. No. Once you've made it, it's ready to use croissant. You need to activate the yeast in the dough mm-hmm. and allow the, the product to prove before it's baked. But, Mm. yes, with croissant pastry, we go through the same process of laminating butter into the mother dough so you can create those separate layers of dough and butter.
0: Mm. Um, We're looking across at uh, the famous cube, and if you haven't been in here to see it, it is really something amazing. For some reason, this does remind me of... This could be a Formula One workshop. Yeah. Yeah? yep. Come on, How how does the design of what you saw in the workshops, how did that inform the construction of this?
1: Well, to go back to the introduction of this segment, um, this actually used to be originally a small goods factory. Oh, thank you. Good. And then it was a wholesale bagel factory. And when we came across it, it had been empty for about 10 years. Nathan Tolman, who I worked for at Three Bags Full, he had signed the lease on this site. And at the time, he opened Kettle Black. And at the opening party, Cameron and I said to him, hey, Nathan, do you know of any good sites? we're absolutely bursting from the seams at Elwood. We think we need to move into a bigger premises so we can increase our production capacity. And he said, it's funny you say that. Here are the keys to this site in Fitzroy. Go and have a look. And Cameron, I, just, I
0: just happen to have it ready to go. Yep.
1: yep. He, I think he was thinking about doing a coffee roastery here, but when he saw the beauty of the building, he, so it was literally an empty shed with nothing in it. Yeah. And when he realised the beauty of the the internal building, he thought maybe it would be a bit wasted just on a wholesale coffee roastery. Yeah,
2: true. So he was looking
1: for a usage for it. Yes. And Cameron and I walked in this particular afternoon and looked around. Yes, Cameron. Cameron is your... Cameron is my brother is and my your... business partner. Yes. He joined me and Loon about 18 months after I founded it. Gotcha. Yep. And helped me turn the business from a small wholesale croissantery into the little retail shop down at Elwood. He has a lot of front of house hospitality experience and was definitely the expert in in turning the business into a customer facing business.
0: Gotcha. So what did he think when he walked in?
1: Well, we both fell in love with it. We thought it's far too big for what we need, but couldn't you do something special with this space? And we were both a little bit reminded of, you know, that scene in Ocean's Eleven where they take a disused warehouse down at the docks and build that perfect replica of a bank vault? Yes. And you'd never know it from the outside. Yes. And we thought, how cool would it be if this nondescript, like, turn-of-the-century warehouse in the back streets of Fitzroy had this space-age, climate-controlled glass cube cube dropped in the center Mm. Where it's kept completely spotless, like this, actually does remind me of the race bay at the Williams F1 factory. Yes, which you could have eaten your dinner off the floor. Absolutely, it and that's
0: the thing, isn't it? About the, at that level,
1: just precision and the fact that it's on show to everyone. Yeah. Everyone can see how spotless we work. And most bakeries will sprinkle flour on the laminator, which is the big mechanical rolling. Piece. they
0: usually the belt is usually covered in flour, that's isn't it? That's right. You've yeah, yeah. seen
1: that, yeah, and. I've seen that. And also on the bench. Yeah. But at Loon, I've developed the recipe and the process such that flour is never added to any of those parts of the process because adding flour actually changes that perfect ratio that you put into the mixing bowl. It's like
0: all this work I've done in the wind tunnel.
1: That's right. <laughs> and then
0: you're, d- you're going to put some gaffer tape on it. Exactly. <laughs> like, what is the gaffer tape doing on that
1: Yeah, think how that would change the boundary. Frank wouldn't be happy. Wing. Frank would really not be happy.
0: I think one of those
1: 3,000 CVs on the desk would be getting your job.
0: Yes, I think we'd be putting them forward very, very quickly. So, Elwood. So, yeah, here we are in the queue, but, but how is this transition? You started off in this, I imagine, very, very small place in Elwood. Very
1: makeshift kitchen. So, I was working at three bags full when I came back from France. Couldn't find a good croissant in Melbourne to save myself. I'd like to make a footnote here that now there are some very good examples of croissants around Melbourne. Okay,
0: so you've lifted the whole game around you. Well,
1: I'm not going to say that I have, but I think the game in general has lifted, and there are some exceptional bakers out there now producing very delicious croissants. Mm. But when I got back, I couldn't find one, and it was my mission. Every day off I had from work, I would find a new bakery to go to and try a croissant, and they all fell below my Parisian expectations.
0: Oh, my God, I can just imagine it like this.
2: I got to the uh. point where I
1: wouldn't even finish it if I was disappointed. So I was like, oh, no, this isn't I'm, worth it. I'm leaving. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm out of here. So um. one,
1: one day I had this thought, well, I've actually got the knowledge. Why don't I just start making croissants myself? And if I could choose, I'd like to go to Patricia Coffee Brewers or Everyday Coffee or Clement Coffee that was at South Melbourne Market and stand at those places and have a beautiful Melbourne coffee. Yes. And a beautiful croissant. Maybe I could make croissants and supply them to my favourite businesses. Right. So I found...
0: you approached them? No. No.
1: So I found the little site down at Elwood. I spent about three months recipe testing until I had a product that I was happy to take out as samples. Yes. And then interesting little interlude, Woodfrog Bakery, which started down in St Kilda. Yes. Jared and Danny approached me and said, look, we don't have a pastry kitchen set up yet, would you make our pastries for us? So they were my first customer alongside my brother's newly opened cafe in Port Melbourne. Gotcha. So I'm supplying to Woodfrog Bakery and my brother's cafe. This morning I was standing in the new Loon CBD shop and a guy opposite the counter said to me, you don't remember me do you? And I said, I'm sorry I don't. And he said, seven years ago when you were supplying croissants to Woodfrog Bakery, I was one of your first customers, and I'd come into Woodfrog just before you'd get there with the little box of pastries delivered, and he said, I'm still eating them seven years later. So I reckon I found, like, the longest-standing Loon customer today. How great is that? Hi, Paul.
0: (laughs) Hi, Paul, if you're there, and well done for your, uh, your persistence. And that was sort of a trademark of the thing, that suddenly there were all these people obsessed with your product because... They got it, didn't they?
1: I think so. I think, like, when I first started talking to family and friends about opening a croissantery, Mm. everybody said to me, well, you can't just sell croissants. Like, you'll have to do bread and muffins and cakes, because who in their right minds opens a business that just makes croissants? Did
0: anybody say cupcakes as well?
1: Oh, of course. They were a hit back then, weren't they? Oh, yeah,
0: they were, but that's the thing about (laughs) fashionable food. It goes out of fashion.
1: But croissants have not gone out of fashion. Mm. Like, what, we've been eating them for over a 100 years? Mm. So I I just had this... I, I can't even describe what the feeling was. I just knew that if I made a product to the very best of my ability that if I wanted that product there would be other people out there that wanted it. I just I had a little bit of just what's the word I can't even think of it. There's, there's,
0: there's Okay so you've obsessed about croissant but you're saying I'm sure there's going to be other people who are going to obsess about something amazing as well.
1: Surely. Paraphrasing. Surely. Surely. Like I have a friend that's obsessed with he knows where the best vanilla slice is, and he knows where the best pork sausages are, and he'll just yeah. trek around Melbourne to these little specialty stores mm. because he knows that's his favourite. Yep. Like, why wouldn't people do that for croissant as well?
2: Well,
0: obviously they have. They've voted with their feet. And just to um, see you at the moment, well, for for once there's not a line out the place, which uh, I was I felt really, really lucky when I came here because... When this place... Elwood was about lines. When this place opened, you could... People would happily wait for an hour to get but a croissant. on.
1: do sometimes. So weekends, we commonly still have the line. And if you'd been in the city store this morning, we had a line all the way past our shop window and into the next shop window. So maybe about 40 or 50 people lined up mm. constantly for the first few hours we were open. So the thing is, though... I think the line scares people off. But over these last few years, we've not only worked on continuing to improve our products, our croissants, we've also tried to work on improving our service. And we really do have a slick system for providing people with really good quality but efficient service. So now those people waiting in the city today Mm. might have waited for a maximum of 10 or 15 minutes before being served. And when you see a line of 40 or 50 people, I think that's pretty decent.
0: Mm. The almond croissant. Yes. Um, for some, and in the past, an almond croissant could be just an utter, utter disappointment. Because in a way, for me, it was. For some people, it would appear it was like, "Hey, we haven't sold all our croissants. Don't worry, we can just cut them up and fill them up with sort of a sort of a frangipane."
2: Well, and we give it. Often.
0: It was like the phoenix croissant. It was like the or the Jesus croissant. Risen it was it, it risen from the dead and pretty disappointing
1: yes but that's that was an austerity measure that french bakers began they didn't want to throw out product at the end of the day
2: yes
1: so adding that stale product adding a sugar syrup to it and then a frangipan and then baking it again mm. they got to sell it as you said as a, as a tarted up product of its predecessor. It's a phoenix pastry. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it is. When you find a good almond croissant, it can be a thing of beauty. Oh, it's a revelation. But classically, the French will, instead of just brushing on the sugar syrup, they will drop the whole croissant in a bucket of sugar syrup overnight. So the whole thing becomes this soggy, doughy mess. And then when they bake it, they'll bake it with a tray flattening the pastry. It's
0: the dead cat pastry. But have you seen a loon one? Yeah, well, have I seen a loon one? Are you, yeah. It just blew me away. First of all, I've got to ask you, is there like a team of people just holding up little slivered almonds? Because I've... Folks, have you ever worked with slivered almonds? They sort of scatter and they go all over the way. Somehow, Kate has worked out a way to regiment these almonds. How do, can you, how do you do that?
1: Oh, look, it's... There's a technique to it. Yeah. And you know is what? Is it an apparatus
0: or is it a technique?
1: It's an, it's a technique. So all of our pastry chefs, they probably, I dread to think of the hours that they spend topping almonds. There is one girl that works in the kitchen, Michaela. Yeah. She is a gun. Nobody can touch her. She is the fastest and the most precise. Almond spreader. Oh, she is like a true almonds genius. Yes. And she's just come back from holiday, so when I saw her yesterday, Ooh. I was
0: thrilled. It was a praise Jesus moment. But okay, just to describe, uh, an almond croissant from here, from Loon, um, it looks a bit like, um, maybe an echidna, because yeah. all these, a kid, echid- I was going to say porcupine, but the the spines I think are too long. Stegosaurus. Stego. Maybe? S- but I think Stego nice. croissant. Somehow they're all organized. The Franciapani has, such depth of flavour and... There's
1: a couple of secret things in there. There
0: is, there's yeah. some spooky <laughs> spooky turns it takes, because I remember having one the other day and went, hang about.
1: Yeah, but you know what I think is the true majesty of the Lunar Almond Croissant, is the fact that You still get the shape of the croissant and the crunch of the outside. It's not one big soggy mess that's consistent the whole way through. You get the crunch of the croissant, the softness and the depth of flavour of the frangipan. I love those toasty textural almonds on top. And um, I think, I think for a reason it's a lot of people's favourite loon pastry.
0: It has become the biggest seller I've heard. It is. I think
1: we had one weekend where, on one day, we sold over 900 almond croissants. Now, imagine how long they all took t- to top with almonds.
0: The mind, the mind boggles. It really, really does. What was the girl's name? Who's the gun? Michaela. Michaela. Thank God you are here, Michaela. This operation is, is just incredible. Dedicated, well, not just to one pastry. Um, there's a few of them now. Are there um, the, your other children... Um, that you have Of of, of that family com- of, your, of the family that come out of the oven every day um, What are the other favourites And are you working on anything else at the moment
1: So we do one pastry Called a Cruffin It's not my favourite of the range But it is a very popular pastry And it's now made all over the world But I actually created it Are you the Cruffin creator I am the Cruffin creator Imagine oh. having that on your CV Cruffin come central on. Yes. Yeah. So the epicentre When I was supplying everyday coffee down in Collingwood, one of the owners at the time would, every morning when I showed up, he'd grab a croissant out of the box and eat it. And I thought, oh, Joe, you're eating the profits. Yeah. So then one night I was standing shaping the pastries and I had a bit of scrap pastry left over and I knotted it and dropped it in a muffin tin and I thought, I'm going to bake that up and put that in the box for every day tomorrow and that can be Joe's breakfast so he's not wasting a croissant. So... I kind of left, and 10 minutes after I'd done their delivery, Joe called me, and he went, oh, my God, that was amazing. Can we have two dozen of them for Friday, and we're going to call them Cruffins, a croissant in a muffin tin? Yes. And the name kind of stuck. So, I'm in Paris a few years ago, and I'm telling somebody about this product I make called a Cruffin, and the look on his face was, like, turned in his grave. Yes,
0: what are you talking about? He was like,
1: Cruffin? It sounds a bit like an STD, and... I've never been able to shake that now, but well, shake that vision yes, from my yes, mind. And, but it, it's a popular pastry. And so. who,
0: who was sorry? Just to refresh my memory, who was the guy that you were first working with um, at the bakery who you had the contratant with?
1: Sebastian.
0: Uh, Sebastian. Yeah. Oh, he or, would have
1: not. What liked... if you told Sebastian? Oh, I, I won't. To this day, it will remain a secret.
0: <laughs> he would have given you the. <laughs> the shoulders would have come up the lips would have gone down the it classic would have been Not impressed no for you <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> exactly a croffin's a really good pastry because it, it's a little bit like a bomboloni donut yes. it lends itself to being filled with flavors so yes. my if we're going to if I'm going to eat a croffin my favorite is actually the peanut butter and jam so we make a peanut butter flavored creme pâtissière and then just a little bit of French raspberry jam, and we roll it in a cinnamon sugar. And it's kind of like a really delicious bomboloni, but butter- more buttery.
0: That sounds really good. Yeah. Even, yeah, even I'm, I might have one of those, but uh, I find it very, very hard to just go past uh, a croissant, and I take off one of the ears, and I dunk, and then I take over the other ear, and I dunk. But maybe because of what you said, um, I will try just going to the crunch, but uh, I will never put a knife to a, a coaster, I promise you that. Uh, the logo, how did that come about?
1: Isn't it genius? So, first of all, the woman behind that is a woman called Susie Tuckson, who works for a company called, or she owns, a friend of mine design studio, mm-hmm. and when I saw that she'd mocked up this design for us, so we decided to change our branding when we moved from Elwood to Fitzroy, and I'd actually created the first logo, which was a more mid-century space race style rocket. That oh, was inspired yes. by the you'll like this link yes. by the Tintin comic. Objective
0: Moon? Des- no, Destination Dest- Moon. I've read the same but thing. I know this design. Objective yes. Loon. Uh, mon dieu! So that's where
1: Loon came from, from the Tintin comic.
0: Wow! Yeah. Captain Haddock would be so proud of you.
1: And there's also some nice links. Like I was an yes. aerospace engineer. I really yes. love the moon. And croissants a crescent shaped croissant yes. Loon. Yes. Crescent Moon. So it all makes sense. But, so Susie Tuxon was the genius behind the little tail of the rocket being a croissant.
2: Yes. So
1: I have her to thank for that.
0: Oh, wow. And it's a, it's a brilliant bit of communication. I didn't get the link between uh, tin tin. Should you ever reheat a croissant?
1: I wouldn't, but each to their own. Mm. You know, I, I think, I'm, and I'm sure most chefs would agree with this, like a really nice eye fillet steak should be cooked medium rare. But you know what? If a customer comes in and they adore their steak well done, well, I I wouldn't heat one up for a customer here. Mm. But once they've taken it out the door, it's their choice what they do with it. Do you know a lot of our? I love this. Mm. A lot of our customers use croissant as roti bread to have with curry.
0: Genius. Uh, Andrew McConnell did on a menu at Supernormal Canteen. Told him that. Did you?
1: And he used loon croissants to do the. Yeah,
0: roti. they were awesome.
1: They were awesome. How good was Natsu?
0: Oh, Natsu was oh. just... That's maybe the best vegetarian food I've ever had.
1: It should be permanent. Two weeks is an injustice to Melbourne, I feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: The shiitake mushrooms.
1: Oh. The shiso peach and buffalo mozzarella. The...
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was there a was lot of... They're doing
1: that at Marion now. A,
0: a really, really good thing's happening yeah. there. Kate, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat to you and find out about just... Also, it's a great thing, I think, for... Melbourne to hear your voice because there has been so much that's been written about you and I think for a lot of people this will be the very very first time they hear you speak
1: Maybe, Maybe. I do have a voice.
0: Many many thanks it's been an absolute pleasure and um, I look forward to more and more croissants in the future
1: Maybe some more echidnas Maybe more. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you
0: I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs>